So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. I hope you're very well and enjoying the summer, but are you actually a psychopath? <laughs> that is what this week's episode is all about. What if a scan of your brain could prove that you, yes you, would one day go ahead and commit a grievous crime? Should we therefore throw you in prison right now and lock away the key? I don't mind. So long as your smartphone remains subscribed to this podcast, then we can still monetize your downloads against advertising. But it is interesting, isn't it? And my interviewee for the middle feature this week is a lady called Lisa, uh, whom I met at the Cheltenham Science Festival, where she was taking part in a debate about a bloke called Mr. Oft. And Mr. Oft essentially was this bloke who developed uncontrollable sexual urges. He was a sex addict, he was a child molester, and basically his defence was that all of his crimes were caused by a tumour that he had in his brain. And when that tumour was removed, the urges disappeared. And then one day, the urges returned, and guess what? They did an MRI scan on his brain, and the tumour had returned. So there was a proven link uh, between his behaviour, his criminal behaviour, and his brain. So anyway, the debate at the festival was all about that and whether neuroimaging should be allowed in court and all that kind of minority report stuff. Can you tell from someone's brain whether they may commit a crime in the future and what should we do about it? Um, And yeah, I think you're going to enjoy the interview. It's a really intriguing subject. Uh, Elsewhere this week, you will learn what a metamore is. You'll learn how to get your favourite film back on the big screen and you'll learn why an exfoliating sponge could become your bedroom essential. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man... There is evidenced commotion outside. He, in a confused state, kills his wife. Murder, sleepwalking and thought crime. Neuroscience in the dock. Poly people are notorious for having really, really complicated Gmail calendars. And Alex Fox has plenty of pointers if you want plenty of partners. But first, it's the man with surprisingly in-depth knowledge of the market towns of the Pyrenees. It's Ollie Pitt with the Zeitgeist. You have fun in Coolio then? Not for the podcast. What are the big trends for this week? Okja. Okay. Or Okja. Or OKR. No, not quite. Less Chelsea than that. It's a film, a Netflix original that was released on the 29th. film starts off, and it's basically a PR event. And it's headed up by this woman called Lucy Mirando, mm-hmm. who is played by Tilda Swinton. Basically, she wants to make this corporation look good. So she decides to create a competition based on a pig. Right. You skip ten years forward into the film, right? And you're in the Korean mountains uh, with a young Korean girl who has befriended one of the pigs. Thing is, Ollie, this film, I cannot remember the last time I bawled my eyes out, ever. When did you last cry to a film? I pretty much only cry when killer whales dance at SeaWorld or when people get through to boot camp on the X Factor. No, you don't cry at that. That's a lie. It's absolutely true. It's a lie for comedic value. No, it's it's absolutely true. Don't believe it. I'm refusing to believe it. I'll tell you specifically what it is. It's not just, you're coming to London. It's not just that, which gets me slightly. It's when Simon Cowell then turns up on like council estate and tells their parents and they're just amazed to see Simon Cowell walk in. And he's like, your daughter's amazing. And they break down into tears. Always gets me. The bit that makes me cry is at the end, there is the realisation of our relationship with animals in modern day society. Oh, no, you're not being a soft veggie again. No, being a hard veggie. Why is this your trend of the week? Well, because it's not so much a film. But by the way, go and watch the film. It's on Netflix now. It's because if 
It was 10 years ago. Netflix didn't exist. Netflix did exist. It was a DVD postal service. There is no way a Hollywood film company would have produced this film. It's two hours long. It's mostly in Korean, or it's like half in Korean. Mm. And it's about a giant super pig befriending a child. Yes. But there's no way if you went to a film... It's an indie film, though, isn't it? You're saying no big Hollywood producer would have made it. (laughs) But in the old days, that's the sort of movie that would have been an indie movie. I think the problem that they've got is they've got to persuade you to spend 15 quid plus popcorn going to the cinema to go and watch a kid chat to a pig. Whereas if it's like Transformers and they're blowing each other up and shooting each other, you're like, yeah, okay, I'm in for that. Anyway, there is a solution. I've been digging around... And there's this website called Our Screen. What you do is you pick your film. My film would be Okia in yeah. this example. You choose your cinema, invite your friends. And if enough people book to go to your screening, your screening happens in a proper cinema. Oh, that's good, isn't like it? like Dolby. What else have you got for us this week, Ollie? Continuity. What? It's a word, isn't it? Word merge. Anyway, Pornhub. Uh, them again. The one site you will look at for news. Uh, Pornhub have launched a a section of their website uh, which is dedicated video content to smart sex toys. Teledildonics. Basically, when they're editing the film, someone is there, the continuity guy. I see what you've done. He basically goes, right, I'm just going to watch that thrust. I'm going to have to move this little counter (laughs) so that the toy, when someone watches this film... I see wanks you off in that style okay. and pleasures you in a certain way. So this will be a new job that people will, uh, will be doing. You'll see it, you'll see it on um, Monster and all those other I job see, sites. the and continuity guy. Yeah, you'll see it everywhere. My favourite Pornhub story of the week, <laughs> which is different is to another yours. one? Yeah. Oh my God, I mean, their, their PR team must be going right <laughs> at it. Was that they had advertised for a PHP developer on um, <laughs> a Internet Engineers <laughs> Jobs website. And, uh, it's it continuity. Said, <laughs> that is what they're doing. That's the job. It might have been continuity. Uh, and it said, uh, come and work at the 22nd highest traffic website in the world. We're looking for senior front-end developers, senior project manager, senior UI slash UX designer, must be willing to relocate to Montreal. Email your CV and then the name of the person you contact. And then someone's written as a comment underneath, PHP dev. Uh, I'm interested, but I don't think I'd be comfortable telling my friends and family that's what I do all day. And then this is the good bit, Ollie. This is the viral bit. Pornhub have then responded, that's understandable. I don't think I'd be comfortable telling my family that I develop PHP either. (laughs) (laughs) That is quite funny, isn't it? That's amazing. Right, we're going to finish off like a big old Pornhub video with your quest to become a modern-day man about town. Have you become Twitter verified? No, but I've been on an absolute barrage verified on Twitter. Yeah. Thanks for the support, by the way, people on Twitter. Yeah. I cannot reapply for like something like 30 days I think it's less than that now like 15, 20 days right. uh, for verifying okay, so, so I'm going to have you held a Nando's black card? no oh Ollie that's, I'm really disappointed about that one because you said last time you said you were about to do it listen we keep not being able to meet so his plans change my plans change I'm a busy man I'm in demand okay and so is he pull your socks up and get I, a Nando's card I have a chicken bone to pick with you go on I know for a fact through my research that you, Ollie Mann, have had lunch on a Nando's black card. Well, it doesn't matter. Well, the fact that I've had chicken on a Nando's black card is nothing to yeah, do with... you could have said... You could have said, oh, I, I, could know, have said, I know someone who's got me. a mutual contact. Yeah, well, I could have. It's not in the spirit of the show, is it? It's not about me trying to help you. I mean, honestly. I'll tell you something that I found out about Nando's black card, actually, since our last conversation, since you can't be bothered to research any more into it. An ITV personality. Oh. I'd better not say any more than that. Uh, was a holder of a Nando's black card until he was recruited to do the voiceover for a KFC commercial, at which point the PR company, which is apparently the same PR company for KFC and Nando's, said, congratulations, you're going to be the proud owner of a red card, which is what they call it at KFC, but to get your red card, you have to come to our offices and have your black card chopped into pieces. That is it's amazing, cheeky. It? Yeah. That is so cheeky. Yeah. Okay, so you haven't done that. Uh, have you become a Freemason? No. Have you got any further than that? Because you said you were going to meet that guy from Watford. I was going to meet the man from Watford. And I also have to apologise because I shouldn't have mentioned him. Oh, really? <laughs> Actually, he did say don't put that in either. Don't mention it again. Anyway. Have you tried the latest cult skincare treatment or product? No. Have you sat at a chef's table yet? No, but <laughs> I have uh, got contact with a, a, a restaurant called Isaac's in Brighton mm. on Twitter and someone suggested them and I've been in touch. I'm not going to give up on it yet. Have you signed up to an elite dating app? Kind of. 
Yeah, you do have a partner, don't you? So I do feel a little bit sympathetic. No, this one's you, okay. So, so this, this this one's all right. Why? I'll explain why. It's called Raya. R A Y A. It's it is an elite dating, but also work app, right? What, so you okay. run this past your girlfriend by saying I'm signing up she for like knows. a super LinkedIn thing. Yeah, she actually yeah. found it as well. Okay. So I feel okay about it. I need to get a referral code from someone that's already on this app, which yeah. and I've put the word out, and I think I've got someone that's going to help me out with that. But leave it with me. Okay. What kind of people is it for? Well, it says when you when you go and uh, do the application process and you start that off, it says it's like comedians, writers, film stars, celebrities, but also young creators who are just starting out in their career. Okay. So I'm not quite sure how they get in. Is there anything to do with Looks. I mean, is there an element of? Is it a mysterious process where if they're it, If you? it is, then I should be let in. You're absolutely no problem there at all. Okay, AAA access to a festival. Yes, you have, as discussed. Looking John McClure, thank you very much, sir. It, yeah, this is ridiculous. So after the last episode, I said, so who was it then from Reverend of the Makers that got you access? Who listens? John McClure, who's the lead singer. Who's the lead singer, and he's an absolute gent. And uh, well, we'll see what you feel after you spend a week. He's also got him. a podcast on YouTube. There you go. Go and watch it. Uh, tickets to the London transfer of Hamilton. No, I, 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 no, I'm just going to say no. You haven't tried, have you? No, no, I have. Why haven't you tried? No, I've, I, I went on their website. You went on a website? Uh, yeah. I went that's, on a website. That's no. not like VIP special <laughs> investigation access, Listen, is it? I mean, out of all of those things, it's like it's so far down on the list. Why? Because it's... Do you not like theatre? We've never had this conversation. You're musicals. Not a I know you're a fan. You're not a musicals person at all. It, you have to sit through people singing. Yes, that does come with the territory. Yeah, it's just not. If somebody thinks that this show will persuade me to like musicals, then take me along. No, that's not good enough. You're hey, not trying hard enough. I'm Listen, you have really to hard. accept that it could genuinely be a transformational night at the theatre for you. You know, in the same way that I don't like football, mm. if I was tasked with getting a ticket to see the FA Cup final, I'd embrace that and say, yes, this will be the best example of a thing that I hate. Go for it. The, the, I mean, that was such an obvious attempt to try and get hold of an FA Cup final ticket. <laughs> and the final point, take a parliamentary ghost train. I don't even know what that means. Do you know what that means? Yes. What does it mean? Mm, what did producer Matt mean when he wrote that? Yeah, I was confused. They're trains that still have to operate by law and they tend to go from uh, like really obscure stations at really weird times and they're never discounted. But they, the, the cost of running through the legislation to stop them from running is often more expensive than running the trains themselves. So you okay. can still go on the trains, you can still buy tickets for them. It's not that hard a thing to do. So in what sense are they parliamentary? They have to run a law through Parliament oh, to, to get rid of it. Oh, that's a bit boring. It's a real pain. Oh, that's yeah, it's a really real dull, isn't it? Thing yeah. for Matt to put on the list. But it's not that I dull. thought it was going to be like a secret train, like the Royal Mail trains that used to ship the postage around London, like underground. I or thought exactly the same. I thought it's some magical train that goes through from Westminster to a yeah. pub that's hidden under the Thames. <laughs> yeah. Instead, I'm going through the Ghost Station Hunters. These are people that find these obscure stations and routes, and I'm messaging them because I want to tag along with them and learn more about it. See? I'm putting in effort. I, that is effort. Yes, because I could just book a ticket you, on a crap train. You could just I? have a boring hour. Instead, you're going to have a tedious day. Exactly. I, I look forward to hearing about that. Good luck with it. Thank you. Um, see you next week. Goodbye. Now, what makes someone commit a serious crime, killing or attacking or molesting another person. We often hear reports of terrorists being brainwashed or serial killers being insane, but then ultimately those people are held responsible in court for their actions. But what if we could actually look at those people's brains and determine that they are neurologically abnormal? What if we could then determine whether or not their crime was their fault? These are just some of the questions that Dr. Lisa Clayden has been considering for decades. The debate revolves around attitudes to excuses, I suppose. There are people who will argue that actually the fact that you can't control yourself is not an excuse. You've still done what you've done and you should be held liable to, for it because you're as much a risk to society as the person who could help what they did. To what extent is every criminal somewhat mental? I mean, to put it in very crude terms, you know, if, if they'd had a wonderful upbringing and they were thinking completely straight, how many crimes would there be? Everyone at some point, something's gone wrong, but that doesn't excuse what they've done. I'm not sure every criminal's mental. I don't think you'd have probably said Robert Maxwell was mental. I think the crimes that he committed were probably some of the worst in depriving people of their 
sustenance in their old age in stealing their pensions. But people might say he was a megalomaniac or even a psychopath. But is there any evidence that he is? And it's a question for society, not for criminal lawyers. But the more difficult thing is what counts as an excuse. And I think what neuroscience may do is help us to understand what drives and makes people behave in the way that they do. And to what extent at the moment is neuroscience admissible in British courts? Well, it would depend what it was. I mean, for example, we had a case where somebody had said they were not fit to plead. If you're not fit to plead, you don't understand the argument in court and you aren't able to instruct counsel. Uh, It was a fraud case. What seemed to have happened was the father had committed a substantial fraud, claiming all sorts of things from insurance companies. One of the things he claimed was that the shop that he owned had been subject to a burglary. This lad had suffered injury and he put in a a claim to the Criminal Injuries Compensation Commission the the son never gave any evidence basically didn't go anywhere near the witness box, his claim that he was unfit to plead was considered by notable psychiatrists and experts, the problem is that it's very hard to diagnose and there's a strong opinion in the psychiatry profession that there is malingering. In other words, that people say they're unfit to plead when they're in fact fit to plead. And so a report goes before the court and he's found fit to plead. Now, I won't go into any more of that. He serves his sentence and his wife actually appeals. And in court, there's a lot of structural MRI evidence because over the years he's had MRI taken, which reveals that by the state of the appeal he was probably telling the truth at the beginning because he's got an organic disease of the brain that is gradually destroying his brain. By the time of the appeal, he's completely deaf and blind and it's all quite difficult for him to talk. But it's quite interesting because that kind of graphic demonstration, I think, convinces courts. So if we were ever to get to the point that we could have such a graphic demonstration from fMRI, which would be utterly reliable then that might come into the court, but we're a long way off that yet. OK, but technology moves quickly, doesn't it? And you know, It's moved that quickly in the last 20 years. It's foreseeable, <laughs> though, isn't it, that in, let's say, 25 years then, that sort of live data could be obtained by a device, right? So j- just like hmm. now I can measure my heart rate on my iPhone and that wouldn't have been conceivable 20 years ago. Theoretically, a lawyer could say to the person in the dock, well, Mr. So-and-so, you say that you were here on the night of the whatever and we can see that your brain says you're lying right now. Here's the data. What does that do for a jury? Well, I guess that really depends how reliable that data is. Let's suppose the entire world agrees that it's 100% reliable. Well, it would save a lot of money, wouldn't it, if you just strapped a, a, a machine to the side of somebody's head. I wonder if society would be satisfied that justice was being seen to be done. I personally doubt whether anything can be 100% reliable and I believe that in the criminal justice system nobody should be punished unless the case against them can be proved beyond reasonable doubt and to me that's well up in the top 90%. (laughs) So I don't think it's very likely to happen but I do think that we could get to the stage where it's seen by courts as being probative in helping them understand but you won't get around the problem of false memory which courts have at the moment of people really believing that something happened to them Mm. when it didn't because in a lie detector it would show they were telling the truth yeah because they believe it to be so absolutely and people do convince themselves of things that are shown years later to be absolutely not the case what about the age of criminal responsibility Mm. because that's a movable feast actually isn't it you know a bit like the age of consent everyone now is about the age of consent 16 but of course it's only been it's it's 10 it's not movable it's 10 and it's not criminal responsibility is 10 yeah and it's not a rebuttable presumption anymore and that's caused problems for courts the problem with the what neuroscience explains and it's pretty firm evidence is that we don't all grow up at the same time Mm. We, we probably know that ourselves. Mm. We're all immature at different times mm. and we're immature in respect of different things. So if you're actually looking at a more serious offence where somebody has to know the outcome of their actions, it is quite possible for the adolescent brain to be going, oh, no, I don't know, really. <laughs> and 
for an action to take place which looks as if the child understands what they're doing, but in fact the outcome might be different to what the child expects. There is some evidence that children do not appreciate how much damage they can afflict by using things that we would understand would damage you, so heavy instruments or possibly knives. They don't know that this could kill somebody or this could result in really serious injury. So they know they're doing a naughty thing. They don't necessarily know they're going to kill someone. Yes. Or they don't know that somebody's going to be injured. Seriously injured. And this sounds really silly. I once heard a neuroscientist explain that she'd done some tests and, and, and run some questionnaires with adolescent boys about dangerous things. Would they do it or would they not? Did they appreciate the risk? And things like diving into a tank full of sharks or jumping off 20 foot off a roof. And the answers revealed that they really didn't appreciate the risk. But I mean, when you say it's not a movable feast in Britain... Yeah. That may be the case, but it is around the world, isn't it? In Florida, children get yeah. tried as adults. Ethically, it's a movable feast, isn't it? Well, what Because, as you say, we, no two 16-year-olds are the same, never mind 10-year-olds. No, no they aren't. But and the problem is, I think, at the younger age range, does a 10-year-old know that a dreadful sexual assault is a rape, for example, which is the problem that came before the House of Lords? And they said, well, they thought that they knew enough. Uh, and one of the judges says, oh, well, they, they're taught right from wrong at school and therefore, surely, they, they have to, we have to say that's, that's enough for responsibility. When it's a 10-year-old, I think the public generally, you know, unless they're whipped into hysteria by the tabloids about a particular case, are more likely as a majority to say, well, 10-year-olds don't naturally do that. Something's mm. gone wrong in this person's life for them to be behaving that way mm. and it is possible for them to be redeemed. Logically, that should apply to an 18-year-old as well, shouldn't it? But it doesn't always. The, the juries don't react like that. Well, there's also the problem that we have a problem with people who have learning difficulties who may never mature to a, a state. And what we will do is they can have the insanity defence if their IQ is lower than 70, which is pretty low, or lower. And they may be able to claim they're not responsible in that way. But I think the question comes back to the issue of what's the most appropriate thing for society to do with these people? Is the criminal trial the right forum for adolescents who've done something wrong? Well, we've got a lot better about how we run them, but what kind of regimes do we put them into? Because I think my view would be that the best outcome for the criminal justice system would not be to make a bunch of bad people a lot worse, but to be differentiating different kinds of punishments to actually help the rest of us be a lot safer when they came out. And I think neuroscience has a role to play there as well. But if neuroscience has a role in dictating whether or not the public is safe if someone gets released, Mm. then you're taking it way out of the court, aren't you? Because it could be years later. Years later, someone who was a serial offender is about to be released, they've served their time, Mm. but then a brain scan shows they've got a proclivity towards murder still. Well, that's not very far from... Let's suppose somebody has a mental health disposal and they end up in a mental health treatment facility for criminals then nobody's going to let them out unless they're sure they're not a risk to society and really what we're talking about with a small minority of people who are so extremely violent is just if fmri could say yeah they are going to do it again well i'm not sure i would want to let them out i'm more worried about people being but is it just I mean, in the past, people in their position would have been... You don't know they're going to do it again. You just know that their brains are such that at at some point they might. Well, people who commit really horrendous acts, think of Ian Brady, think of Myra Hindley, they didn't get out again. I'm not sure that people who, who do really dreadful things do get out again. Some do, but nobody gets out if they've killed somebody except on licence, and that means they will be back in if they actually show any sign of behaviour that's violent or maybe leading to something similar to another death. OK, but let's take white-collar fraud then, like you right. said earlier with Robert Maxwell. I mean, I know in his scenario he never went to prison. Yeah. If he did and his 10 or 20 years came to an end, but then they did a brain scan and said, oh, no, he's still the kind of guy that would embezzle a load of cash. What then? Well, I think that we'd have to be sure that it really would show that, and it might not. I mean, I'd, I'm not sure what sort of brain, brain scan would show you. We'd definitely do it again. There's a great deal being written about psychopaths. Ken Keel in America has produced a, a book on it, uh, which suggests that 
he thinks you can pretty accurately predict when somebody who's really dangerous is going to kill again. But I think that the more interesting question would be, what do you do to somebody like Robert Maxwell to try to make sure when he comes out that he doesn't do it again? I mean, do you just stop him from having anything to do with anybody who has a pension? <laughs> do you stop him having bank? And what do you do? But there might be more practical things you could do in that situation. The problem with very violent people is you can almost certainly not keep them away from a knife or using their fists. And what about when science tells us that someone the public want to think of as mad isn't? That they've done what they've done rationally? Well, I, I think that's, again, a subtle question. You had it with Breivik in Norway. What did Anders Breivik's results say? Anders Breivik's results said that he was not insane. And he didn't actually want to plead that he was insane, if you remember. I mean, I'm not a Norwegian lawyer, but the coverage at the time was pretty clear that he didn't want that. And he's convicted, and, I mean, he is clearly narcissistic. But I think it's, it's been hard for Norwegian society to accept he wasn't mad. I mean, how could somebody try to blow up a government building and kill hundreds of people and then drive out and shoot large numbers of teenagers who were just having a good time on an island and not be mad. But it's perfectly possible. But, I mean, it's obviously someone who completely lacks compassion, isn't it? And I suppose you could argue, well, that's a soldier. You know, he just sees Mm. himself as a soldier in his own private war. But actually, that's what we train people to do, is kill people without compassion. Well, actually, I think we don't... You know, my argument about soldiers would be, aren't they trained more not to shoot people? You know, because they really aren't supposed to go around shooting civilians willy-nilly. So actually, they're probably better trained at not shooting people they shouldn't shoot than (laughs) you and I are. What is automatism? What's automatism? It's a very little-used defence. Denning called it the last refuge of the scoundrel in a case. It's when you say, it's not my act, I don't remember doing it. And sleepwalkers do that. And we've got sleepwalking cases. People under hypnosis do that. No. Yeah. Like, I mean, I what's an example? Can you think of a case? A sleepwalking case, I can think uh, of, of examples because there have been sleepwalking cases with driving. Mm-hmm. The most infamous one, and which I have severe doubts about, is a case in Canada where a guy got into his car, drove 40 minutes, and then killed his father-in-law and seriously injured his mother-in-law. Wow. What, with the car or, like, with no, the No, no, he... he I can't now remember factually whether it was a knife. I think it was a knife. But actually his argument is he remembers none of it. The difficulty is that could happen if you're in a disassociative state. He mm. was, there were signs he was extremely worried and under pressure and very, very stressed beforehand, which would be quite common for people going into a dissociative state. But the Canadian court accepted that as an excuse. Would that stand up in Britain? No, I don't think it would. We, we, but we know a lot more about sleep now. So are you saying actually people can't sleepwalk and go and kill someone? I think it would be very unlikely. We might think that that was possible if it happened very quickly and they'd got a history of sleepwalking. So say that you actually are unfortunate enough to sleep with somebody who has a dream and acts out something mm. and it very quickly brings about your death. <laughs> so they are only asleep and in this state for two or three minutes. I think we might, if the evidence was there, believe that, which would be a bit unfortunate for you. There was a case when I was doing my PhD that the CPS informed me about, which was more to do with diabetes. And people can go into diabetic comas and carry out automatic behaviours. And this poor guy was carving a joint because he'd just taken insulin. And he knew that he needed meat or something quickly. So he's carving away with a carving knife. His landlord, who's also a very close friend, comes in and he stabs him to death. And that was successfully pled as... They didn't prosecute. Because they would have successfully pled automatism. Well, they just decided, presumably, that it wasn't in the public interest and they might not succeed. Okay, but there's a danger now that people will see those precedents and say, right, automatism, that's why I did it. Well, they'd have to prove it. I mean, there's very strong evidence in his case. That's why they didn't want to proceed. The the one that's a little more interesting is the case in Wales where a guy called uh, Mr Thomas, I believe, uh, was prosecuted because he murdered his wife. They go away for their wedding anniversary. He's actually on medication, but it affects his ability to perform sexually. Right. So he stops taking it. 
there is evidenced commotion outside the caravanette that they're, they're sleeping in. He, in a confused state, kills his wife. This comes to court and the judge actually rules that there is an automatism defence and the case is withdrawn from the jury. Wow. But I mean... It's very rare. You have to have a huge amount of evidence to establish it. But it is your responsibility if you're saying at the time that you made the decision to stop taking your medication. Well, that, yeah, that's, that's the interesting thing about that case. I mean, there were a lot of cases at the time when we were using animal-produced insulin from pigs that showed that people couldn't manage their diabetes and were prone to go into diabetic episodes because it wasn't predictable. Mm. And those cases, I think, are very problematic. There's some driving cases and all the rest of it. And different attitudes are taken. In the driving cases, policy reasons, uh, the courts usually say, well, you were behind the wheel, you were driving. We won't accept any sort of excuse, which is a bit harsh if you have no warning of going into a diabetic episode. But obviously the outcomes could be really dreadful. Mm. I mean, that's the thing with uh, medication that has alcohol in it, isn't it? Yeah. Technically, it says on the label, it says on every label. Yeah do not take this and operate heavy machinery, but everyone does. Yes. And so it's it's common parlance that you take that thing and then do mm. that thing, and mm. yet presumably, theoretically, you could go to prison for having caused the death of someone by driving under the influence of a drug. Well, that would entirely depend on what the outcome was. I think, you know, if you actually are driving and you exhibit the behaviours, because it's largely behaviour-related, dangerous or careless driving... If you exhibit those behaviours, you're going to find it very hard to plead anything that would convince a jury. I'm I'm sorry to get all minority reports on you, (laughs) but I think it's the natural question. Should we be incarcerating people based on what we predict they will probably do? So we've we've talked about what happens if you're already in prison Mm. and the, the signs are you haven't recovered. But what if we can identify through someone's brain Mm. the chances that they will go on to do something? Okay, so there's kind of three parts to that question. So the first one is I don't think we should ever incarcerate anybody unless we've shown them to be criminally responsible because we lock huge numbers of people up. And firstly, I think that you and I probably want our taxes spent on other things. But secondly, I think it won't just be brain scans. There is a gentleman called Adrian Rain, who's a professor at Pennsylvania University, neurocriminologist, who's argued this for quite a long time and wants us to debate it. And the issues are about the putting together of a lot of records. So you might have school records, you might have brain scan evidence, you might have medical records, you might have blood tests that would genetically suggest. We could already suggest 50% of the human race that's more likely to do dreadful, violent things, and they're born male because of testosterone. Offer that as a punchline, but it's actually true, isn't it? Yes. But, I mean, should we really bear... I I mean, because even he, at his most extreme, will say that his chances of being right are 60% to 80%, and they're specific as to different type of offences. So I think... The question you have to ask yourself is, 60% is really low, isn't it? There's 40% likelihood this will never happen. And why are you doing it? Why are you punishing for something people for something they might do when we know there's a good chance they won't do it? So the other question, I think, is we tried something similar here with dangerous personality disordered patients. We started locking them up. And it wasn't a great success. The psychiatric profession hated it. They saw it as a diversion of resources away from more deserving patients. And, you know, you do have to view the mental health system as a continuum. There are a lot of people who are a danger of harming themselves far more than harming other people. And it is a therapeutic profession, so they don't necessarily want to be put into the uniform of prison guards and asked to do the work of the state in that respect. And finally, I think, the states we respect least, regimes in Russia and some of the older regimes in the Eastern Bloc, used to lock people up under mental health order provisions for all sorts of reasons because the state didn't approve of their behaviour. So those are my reasons for not liking it. But I don't think that excuses me from having to discuss it, particularly if the predictive nature of it becomes stronger. You know, because Adrian Rain would say, all you you nice liberals just don't like to countenance this. But what would you do if I really could predict who the dangerous people were? And therefore that is a debate that does have to be had as technology gets better. Yes, but it's one I personally don't feel any warmth 
towards embracing. Dr Lisa Claydon, Senior Lecturer in Law at The Open University. Alex Fox is up next, after this. Man fans, this show is free to download, but it is not free to produce. Look at our logo. We're not part of a big podcast network. Look at our website. We are not backed by a big newspaper or a commercial entity. We are proudly an independent production. We don't have offices. We don't have staff. We just have us making this show for you. So if you like what we do, please help pay for it. Support us by buying us a beer. The average price of a pint of beer in Britain is £3.47, a little over four US dollars. By using the secure form on our website, modernman.co.uk, you can sign up to buy us one or two or three beers a month. Or you can make us a one-off donation via PayPal. Every penny helps support this show and bring you more episodes. Just click beer money. Cheers. Okay, time to get our rocks off with the one and only Ms. Fox. Hello. I've just rocked on back from Austria. You're kidding? Yeah, I was uh, speaking at a a big conference called 15 Seconds, uh, which is aimed at people who are involved in communications and marketing. It used to have a really nice. Not people who suffer from premature ejaculation. (laughs) No. (laughs) I was there doing a talk called 10 Things You Never Knew About Sex But Your Business Might Need To. Okay. Uh, And afterwards, I was approached by a gentleman from a new company. Company called Resensive, which some of our listeners may find very interesting. Resensive. Resensive. Okay, yeah. Yeah. In the past, we've had lots of letters from gentlemen who have been circumcised. Oh, who this are, again. Yeah, who are looking for ways to increase their sensitivity. Yeah. And this is a new product. Okay. You use it in the shower. It's like a sort of like a sponge with a hole in, that's mildly exfoliating. So, oh, yeah. oh God. <laughs> So it, uh, it very <laughs> Nothing gently... about that sentence suggests eroticism <laughs> to me. <laughs> I was about to say it very gently scours your knob, but that's not really selling it to you either, is it? It, uh, it very, very gently yes. uh, removes dead skin cells from the outside of the penis so that uh, the skin feels soft and rejuvenated and is extra sensitive. I'm not sure whether the product's on the market yet, uh, and as I say, it was presented to me in Austria, so I, I'm not sure whether it will be available in the UK straight away. But I think this may be of of interest to some of our listeners, so I'll keep you posted. Time for our weekly listener question, sponsored as ever by our friends at mycondom.com. What can you buy on mycondom.com that is arguably better than putting your dick through a sponge? You can buy on-clinic condoms, which are actually designed not... On-clinic. On-clinic condoms, which are designed not to go on penises, but actually to go over sex toys. They've got no lubricant on them. Uh, specifically so you can add your own that's, that is compatible with the material your toy is made from, mm. and also they don't have a teat on the end. Always learning. We're mm. going to continue learning as we get through this week's question because it's a letter that I find almost completely impenetrable, but I think you'll be able to explain the words as we get to them. Maybe we should cut a hole in it like a sponge and make <laughs> it penetrable. Let's see what we can do with this one. Okay. It is from a man who's chosen to remain anonymous, and he says, I am bisexual and polyamorous. Now, thanks to this show, I do know what both of those words now mean. Uh, Bisexuality, I always understood polyamorous is someone Uh, who likes essentially open relationships, lots of people. Yes, but um, they are committed and consensual and there's there's an emotional attachment. Whereas swinging is just about having sex with lots of people consensually. Polyamory is about forming um, sometimes lasting, committed relationships with more than one person at once. Okay. I'm okay so far. Okay. My wife, who I've been open with from the beginning, is thus far mono. That's monogamous. So this person's wife, until this point, has only had a committed relationship with one person at a time. Him. Him at the moment and probably other people in the past. Okay. She's not a cowgirl. I was single when we met. A cowgirl within the polyamorous community is someone who rides on into a herd of poly people, so a group of people who are all having relationships with each other, and tries to lasso one of them and snare them away into a monogamous relationship. So it's some, a cowgirl is someone who steals someone away from a poly relationship and convinces them to be monogamous. It's a little bit of a pejorative term. We've discussed polyamory a number of times during our 10-year marriage. She being interested in my experience living in a poly group full of frubbly feelings, metamors and NRE, etc. 
No fucking idea now. <laughs> okay, taking it from the top. Frobbly is another word for compersion, which is the feeling of happiness you get from witnessing your partner be happy with another person. It's kind of the opposite of jealousy or schadenfreude. It's a learnt feeling, I believe. Polyamorous people talk about how when they first became poly and saw someone they loved having sex with or going on dates with or being happy with someone else, they felt envious and they, and they felt threatened. But over time, because they can see how happy their partner is, it makes them feel all glowy and wonderful. And that's what they feel frubbly. That's what frubbliness is. Metamors. Metamors. A metamor is someone that your partner is dating but that you're not. So they're the amore that you might meet. <laughs> you met amore. Oh, wow. Uh, but you're not going to have anything to do with them. Uh, well, you might be their friends, uh, but you're not going to have a sexual or emotional or romantic relationship with right. them. Right. And NRE, not really something? NRE is new relationship energy. Oh. That refers to when you know when you first met somebody and you're just falling for them and, and you feel really, really excited. And it's both a very positive feeling because it's such a thrill, but it can also throw the rest of your life into disarray. That's NRE. And it's something that poly people are very aware of because they recognise that while it can be a really blissful, wonderful, happy-making feeling, it can also potentially cause trouble in their other relationships if they're distracted by somebody new and the energy that they're getting from them. Okay, so thanks for all that translation. So, so far, <laughs> basically, blokes in a marriage, yeah. his wife's interested in the, the nice things he gets out of being polyamorous. Yeah, he, well, okay. he's now monogamous with her, but he's been poly in the past. She's intrigued by it because he's told all these wonderful stories of, of excitement and... And, and uh, weird language. Yeah. Okay. She's discussed giving it a try several years ago, but decided against it, but recently mentioned giving it another go. We're not unicorn hunters. Now, you have explained that one before. Oh, I'm going to test you now, Ollie. Um, What's a unicorn? Uh, the beautiful woman who... I can't remember. You're very close. A unicorn is a single woman who wants to join an, a man and a woman in a sexual relationship. Right. We referred to it when we were talking about threesomes yes. in our last series. It can also be a third woman who you're looking for in a polyamorous relationship. Okay. Called a unicorn because they're very beautiful but very rare and hard to find. But he's saying his wife isn't interested in girls, so they're not after another another female. Okay. We're not unicorn hunters. My wife is straight. I think she has... Oh, God, there's another one. I think she has an ambiguous sweetie. <laughs> that word is a combination of ambiguous and sweetie. It means someone who you have a, a burgeoning relationship with, but you've not quite put a label on what that is yet. It's all a bit up in the air. Okay. So I think she has an ambiguous sweetie. And if it's who I think, then he's absolutely adorable. He did say he was bisexual, didn't he? So this could work out well. Uh, Before taking that step, though, we think it would be best for her to test the waters. We're not interested in swingers. That's a different community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's sex only. Fine. But a cuddle party, I can guess what that is, would be a gentle introduction. The trouble is, being so long out of the community, having moved a few hundred miles northeast and being an unfortunate number of years older, I'm now completely out of touch. I've checked the internet, but as reliable information is scarce and all of what's happening seems to be happening in London, can Foxy give any tips on where to begin? I can translate Foxy, that's you. (laughs) Yeah, it is. We need to clarify what cuddle party means here. Do we? There are two types. Ugh. A polyamorous cuddle party is where a load of poly people get together and chat and it might, it's quite tactile. But there are also cuddle parties more related to um, sexual healing and therapy and tantra where people go and get more naked and it's more, of a, it's more of a workshop where you actually are instructed on holding and being held. Okay. So you want to make sure you go to the right type of cuddle party if you want something more chilled out and um, community based. And what do you think they're for? Or, yeah, is the one that she should go to. Bearing in mind, she's new to polyamory. She already knows who she probably wants to get with, and he knows who that is as well. So this is very much a way of getting everyone back on track. 
I actually asked a lot of my friends who are in the poly community for their tips on this. And one of them who came forward is called Amelia. Amelia Bays is actually a counsellor who specialises in speaking to poly people and helping advise married couples who want to start exploring polyamory on how to do that. I think Skyping with Amelia, although she's, she's based just outside of Brighton, so it might be a pest to travel, but maybe having a phone consultation with her or, or, or chatting over the computer could be a really good way of highlighting good strategies to take when the when our pair here are approaching polyamory for the first time and maybe some things to be aware of something it is worth traveling for which isn't until october the 7th but there is something called poly day uh, which is a one day holiday specifically for poly people and people who are looking to get into polyamory Mm -hmm. again i'm afraid that does take place in london but it's only i think about 15 quid for a ticket and it's a whole day of talks and presentations and a chance to get to meet people from all over the united kingdom who might have really good advice here but actually if you're looking to start up a series of relationships not just flings then it makes sense not to travel for that conference doesn't it because you're looking for other people in your area who you're not going to only have sex with but are also potentially going to go to the movies with and do each other's laundry with yeah and you're also looking for people who you might not have a relationship with uh, romantically at all but who are poly like you and so can understand where you're coming from if you want to discuss something or you know or you want advice on something polyamory isn't just about having sex or having relationships with people it's about being part of a group of people who collectively support each other um to, so to find more poly people in your area if you google uk polyamory resources there's a facebook group called uk polyamory loads and loads of people on there if you go on fetlife which is um, a kink-based social network site that we've, we've referenced in the past it's really easy to find other poly people in your area via that as well I don't know specifically where our couple are here, but they're bound to find somebody near them. They should be aware, though, that it's not uncommon for poly people to travel. In fact, for some of them, the idea that the relationships they have are multiple means that it's easier to have a long-distance relationship because they can have an amour somewhere in another country but then still get their sexual and emotional needs on an everyday basis met by somebody who's closer to them. A ship in every port. Precisely. I have to ask you finally on this because um, we're a pretty non-judgmental show and I think that's why people get in touch and are very honest with the questions they ask. But the, the honest question that occurs to me when I'm reading this out is are people who say I'm polyamorous and this is my thing, are they actually happy? Because it's one thing to say, well, we're not designed to be in monogamous relationships either, and that's why people end up having an affairs, and that doesn't make them happy. But even if I thought it was a good idea to say, yeah, I've got three other girlfriends as well, I just think if my wife was also, you know, having a relationship with three other men, inevitably, I'd get jealous and feel unhappy about it, or she would. I just don't see it ending well. Polyamory isn't for everyone, but monogamy isn't for everyone either. Uh, I recently interviewed 12 different people who are all in different polyamorous style relationships uh, for an article for Stylist magazine. And their stories were all really different. One girl who was just starting out with experimenting with Polly did say, I'm finding it really, really hard. She said throughout her life in monogamous relationships, even when she'd really, really loved people, she just felt naturally compelled to also have experiences with others. And it wasn't just about sex for her, although that was one element of it. She just she found that she would genuinely fall in love with more than one person at once. And it was heartbreaking for her when she had to commit to just one of them and she'd always feel really guilt-ridden and traumatised by the fact that conventional society told her that there must be something wrong with her. And in fact, Amelia talks about this a lot. She says that relationships with multiple people are often pathologised by the mainstream. You're told that you must be allergic to commitment or you've got such a big ego that you need constant reassurance from loads and loads of people that you're hot. But in fact, for lots of people... They genuinely are able to love more than one person at once. And and even when jealousy does occur, the good bits make up for those more challenging parts. And in practical terms, I mean, seriously, how do you choose whose house you go to on Christmas Day? 
Gmail calendars. <laughs> Poly people are notorious for having really, really complicated Gmail calendars. They all share them so they can see who's doing what with whom at once. In fact, one of my interviewees, Eunice, said that she always knows when things are starting to get serious with a new partner when she invites them to share their calendar and we become like part of the scheduled crew because I think she's got about four partners that she sees regularly. Well, we are just looking for one great question for next week's show. If you think think you might be sitting on it or just have it in your pants uh, then what you need to do is head over to our website modernman.co.uk and click on the feedback form to submit it you can remain anonymous if you like and alex if people want to buy themselves some adequate sexual protection for any escapade on which they intend to embark and you're going to need plenty of condoms if you're polyamorous. Yes. Uh, luckily, you can get 15% off everything at mycondom.com with the code FOXHOLE. And with that, we've very nearly reached the end of this week's Modern Man, but there is just time to anoint a new ambassador. It is Dave in Chicago who has donated us $40 via PayPal. Thank you, Dave. PayPal.me slash modern man. He says, Ollie, I had this money sloshing around from a failed eBay purchase and always felt guilty that I'd never subscribe to send you beer money. So put whatever this is in pounds behind your virtual bar. Uh, it's currently £30.89, Dave. Thank you. That's enough for three pints each. And so I now pronounce you Manbassador for Chicago. I hope that will keep you warm during those cold winter months. Our theme is by Django Django. Thanks, lads. Fads. And our record of the week this week is by Albin Lee Meldow. This track is called Persistence, and it's off his debut EP Bloodshot, which is released on the 21st of July. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.